The following content is meant purely for educational and informational purposes and should not be relied upon as financial, investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. This is the Fundamentals Podcast, where we demystify crypto and help you navigate this ever-evolving internet-native economy. In this episode, we're joined by Kenny Lee, the co-founder of Manta Network, a modular blockchain ecosystem for ZK applications. Manta offers two networks. Firstly, Manta Pacific, the first EVM equivalent ZK application platform that's scalable and secure through Celestia data availability and Polygon ZK EVM. And secondly, Manta Atlantic, which is a ZK layer one chain on Polkadot. In today's episode, we focus on Manta Pacific and dive into its modular design. Kenny walks us through their use of the OP stack, Celestia, and Polygon ZK EVM. We speak about the rationale behind this modular design and envision Manta's role in a crypto native future. We speak about the recently launched yield bearing L2, new paradigm, and learn what yield bearing L2s are all about. We also dive into Manta's economic model, speak about value accrual and economic sustainability, the key KPIs that Manta uses to track performance internally, and also touch on the role of the Manta token within the ecosystem. Finally, we speak about Manta's latest funding round and plans for the future. Tune in for a great discussion about the world of modular blockchains. Kenny, welcome to the Fundamentals Podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it, man. Excited. I uh, finally got Manta Pacific live on Token Terminal. So we have all the quantitative data there for our analysts and investors to explore. And today the goal is to kind of dive into the qualitative aspects of everything you guys have going on at Manta and try to get a very holistic view, your approach to the market, how you're positioned within it and how you see the future in this space. And I thought a great place to start would be you giving us an introduction to anyone I have familiar to what Manta Network really is and what your purpose is within the space. Yeah, sure. So Manta Network, we are a modular ecosystem for Web3 applications and specifically Manta Pacific is our L2 deployment, our Ethereum-based L2 deployment that leverages Celestia for modular data availability. And so we've been live for about uh, three months now, and we are currently in optimistic rollup, and we're in the process of transitioning over to ZKEVM, leveraging Polygon CDK. Got it. And how would you kind of summarize the really core problem that you set out to solve in founding Mental? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a few different core problems here, right? Like one is more on the philosophical side. And on the philosophical side, I'd say that, you know, like people want a resilient network that can scale and adapt to the times. And when I say that, what I mean is when you look back in like 2013 era, you see Bitcoin and forks of Bitcoin, right? And those are not really, you know, I wouldn't say not usable, but they aren't really used these days, right? Like Bitcoin is a store of value. We see BRC20 coming into play and everything, but those are kind of the layer twos on top of Bitcoin. Similarly, in around like 2016, 2017, you see Ethereum and forks of Ethereum. And you know, now no one really builds apps and stuff on top of Ethereum anymore because the scalability is limited. And so we're now fast forwarding into like 2022, 2023. We're looking at layer twos as that solution for scalability. But I think that we're also already noticing that there's limitations to that scalability as well, right? When you see like inscriptions at play and taking down L2 networks on a daily basis. So so what we really want to set out to do is on the infrastructure level, how do you build something that can be future-proofed? And the way that we want to approach that is by taking that modular approach. And when we say modular, right, like we are really able to take advantage of all of the key technologies that are available at the time. So for example, right, like when we launched 
three months ago, we were just an OP stack based L2 fully settling to Ethereum. And now we've actually integrated Celestia into the mix, right? And Celestia with modular DA, long story short, it cuts fees significantly. We've already reduced fees by about um, 6x, and we anticipate it's going to hit about 20x lower cost for gas fees in approximately two, three weeks. And so, you know, we're able to take advantage of that technology in order to bring a better user experience to people. And then at the same time, as I mentioned before, we're also transitioning over to Polygon CDK. And what that essentially means is, you know, we're going to be ZK EVM, which ultimately means also a better user experience for the users. And so I think like we're just taking these small adaptive steps to make sure that our network can still be scalable and still be usable, whether it's today or five years from now, right, where we've seen other sort of networks kind of fall short after, you know, their time. We want to make sure that we stay resilient to that. Got it. That, that is a really great overview. And as we're focusing on Manta Pacific here, and especially the modularity there, you did mention Celestia, the OP stack, moving over to Polygon ZK EVM. So there's a lot going on there. And when we think about kind of the scaling solution landscape at the moment, I'd be very interested in diving deeper into that architecture that you've decided on in terms of how it currently differs from other kind of modular scaling solutions. And why did you decide to go with the specific stack that you have right now? Yeah. So, I mean, first off is just OP stack is the most mature sort of uh, deployment of some type of roll up in the L2 space right now. Right. I mean, you see players like WorldCoin, you see players like Base, Optimism itself, right, like using OP stack. And so, you know, in terms of the tried and true technologies, right, I think that definitely making OP stack that first choice was pretty sound on our end. But, right, OP stack only allows full settlement onto Ethereum, including the data availability, including, you know, anyway, the, the point is that OP stack is just OP stack. Everyone knows what OP stack is. But what we wanted to do is, you know, how do we how do we not just be another out of the box OP stack roll up? And how do we really create something that would would be beneficial to the users, be beneficial to the developers? And, you know, when people say UX, we need better UX and all that stuff, like people usually think on the application layer, right? They think, oh, less buttons or make things easier, account abstraction, all that stuff. But to re the reality is like, there's a lot of things that you can do on the infrastructure layer as well, right? Like, so reducing gas fees significantly is a huge user experience improvement because now you can do 10 swaps instead of one. And so, you know, like being able to, you know, use that modular DA system allows us to bring that flexibility and those benefits to the user. With that in mind, right, like right now in the DA space, there's not really any other solution out there except Celestia. And Celestia kind of, or not kind of, essentially built the entire DA space and made this problem solved, right? Or they, they, they identified this problem and solved this problem. And so it's, I think, a really great breakthrough in this space. And people are really starting to look at modular DA. But I'd say that, you know, there's still a bit of time before we really start seeing it go mainstream, even on the Ethereum side, right? Dank chart or proto dank charting, right? Like being able to kind of scale on the call data side there and all that stuff, it's already being explored. But, you know, like, I, I think like we're pretty ahead of the curve in terms of our adoption. And because we are a generalized Ethereum-based L2, what this means is that any Ethereum-based application that can deploy anywhere else on other EVMs can deploy on us and immediately take advantage of that low gas fee. 
Okay, that, that's fascinating. As you mentioned, you're maybe a bit ahead of the curve. And I, I would agree in the sense that I feel that even when we speak about Celestia, a lot of people don't properly understand what kind of benefits or effect that would have by integrating that into the stack. So could you maybe speak a bit about what Celestia's role in the Manta Pacific architecture is in terms of how it improves scalability and transaction costs? Yeah, so it definitely helps on the transaction cost side, right? Like, I think that is the primary benefit that users experience. And then in terms of throughput, it increases throughput as well. The way that it does this is so whenever you for L2s, especially for layer twos, what we do is we take like a bunch of transactions that everyone does and we batch them together. We kind of chunk them together and throw the verification onto the L1, right? So we're just saying, Okay, because on the L1, instead of doing one transaction for every one user, we're going to take 100 transactions, turn it into one transaction and put it onto Ethereum, right? So that's where like the scalability side comes in. But when you do that, the majority of the cost of the L2, which then gets passed on as gas fees to the L2 users, the majority of that cost is in what's called the call data. The call data is essentially the area that stores the information about every single transaction. Right. Ethereum was built uh, to be a global computer. It wasn't built to be a global Dropbox. Right. It wasn't built to be a global Google Cloud or Google Drive. And so when you try to shove all this data into Ethereum, Ethereum says, OK, we'll, we'll take it, but we're going to have to charge you for this because that's going to blow up everything else that like everyone else has to download to maintain the network and everything. And also when people, you know, people want to call this data and there's data costs and all this other stuff. So essentially that area, that component that stores all that transaction information, it's called the call data. And that is where the majority of the expense of L2s come in. And so I, I think the estimate is around like 80 or 90 percent of the gas costs are pretty much bottled into that one specific area. So if we're able to somehow take that call data and put it somewhere else. And the remainder of the transaction can still go to Ethereum to settle, then that would be a, a great scenario because now we've essentially eliminated 80 or 90% of the cost. In this case, that 80 or 90% of the cost, that call data, now goes to Celestia. And Celestia helps with the verification of everything. So hopefully that makes sense. And that's where the, the benefits can be derived and passed back on to the users. Got it. And in practice, that is already implemented, right? correct? Yes. Yes. That's awesome. I'm going to try to share some data. I saw some charts on Twitter when I was scrolling through. I'm going to overlay them here as well for people to see what kind of uh, drop in like transaction costs that has been because it, it was quite impressive. Now, kind of covered the OP stack part, Celestia as well. I also want to speak about the ZK side of things. You mentioned you're moving towards the Polygon ZK EVM as well. So ZK Tech has been around for a long time. And I wanted to ask you that how does Manta Pacific address the specific needs of ZK applications that aren't currently met by the solutions out there? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I think when people think about ZK, they usually think about one of two things. On the one side is ZK on the application level. And then on the other side is ZK on the infrastructure level, right? When we talk about ZK rollups, ZK EVMs, that's ZK on the infrastructure level. And it's really more so applied as a methodology to verify these transactions that are going into the L1. But, you know, I think the question that you're asking is more so about ZK on the application level, like which, which benefits and can provide more feature sets to the uh, developers directly. So ZK on the application level 
is a bit funny in the sense that, you know, like there's this, the, I'd say the first generation of ZK applications were all about like private transacting, right? So you got like the Zcashes of the world, you got the tornado caches of the world and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so all of these teams were essentially building these ZK circuits, which are, you know, the, the compilations of ZK code that allow you to do these sort of private transactions on chain in, in house. But what that means is that everyone's kind of building the same thing, right? But they're kind of reinventing the wheel each time and they're adding a little bit better, you know, stuff onto there to make it a little bit faster or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, you're building the same thing and you're, you need the same sort of components that everyone else can benefit from, right? It's almost like if you were doing your own accounting system for your business and instead of using QuickBooks or some other service that does all the accounting for you, you just decide to still use, you know, paper and pen, which, you know, that's cool and all, but like paper and pen, and if everyone has to do it, then everyone has to go through the same problems, right? And so for, for the ZK applications, what we realized is that at the end of the day, if you really boil it down, there's like a handful of different sort of buckets that ZK applications fall under. You can do like private payment, you can do private voting, you can do game verification, and maybe like two or three other major things. And so instead of asking each of these projects that are in these buckets to keep building everything themselves from the, the ground up, why not just create these circuits on a more general level that can be maintained by us? And then any of these projects can use these different circuits for whatever they're you know trying to build. And so now all of a sudden, you don't have to worry about as a project developer, you don't have to worry about maintaining the code. You don't have to worry about writing, you know, and compiling everything in CIRCOM. You don't have to worry about like cryptography. You don't have to worry about everything else that comes with the headache of building a ZK enabled application. You can just build your application and then use our SDKs to plug those ZK functionalities into your application. And so what normally takes, you know, a few thousand lines of code can now take less than a hundred lines of code which from even a security perspective is much easier to manage. So yeah, that's what we're trying to do on the application level to enable more ZK applications in the ecosystem. Got it. That, that's really good. And maybe from an end user's perspective, I always like to look at things from, from that point of view as well. Are you able to give like maybe an example or two about some unique ZK use cases that would benefit like an end user? Yeah. I mean, I, I think like the biggest... One of the most exciting use cases for me that I don't know why it's not in the market today is just payroll systems, like on-chain payroll systems. Like every single crypto company, blockchain company, Web3 company, whatever you call them, they all pay their employees somewhat in crypto, right? Like whether it's stable coins or native tokens or whatnot, but it's all fully public. And that's just kind of, you know, maybe people just aren't concerned right now because there's not enough usage, there's not enough people to care about analyzing all this data to that care about surveilling all this data, but it truly is a privacy issue, right? And so how can you build a payroll system on chain that can preserve the privacy of people who are receiving money from you, right? So like, I think like private payroll systems are very interesting. But on top of that, right, like, when people associate ZK on the application level, they usually think privacy. But there's a lot of other applied use cases of ZK as well. And one of the use cases from one of the, the circuits that we built, which is, you know, that general circuit stuff that I was talking about earlier, which we refer to as universal circuits. One of the uh, really cool use cases, or I think is really cool, is gaming. 
So if you and I play a game of chess, right, like it's it can be built on the blockchain very simply because it's fully transparent. It's complete information in the sense that you know where all the pieces are. I know where all the pieces are. The only strategy happens in our head, right? And so if someone were to check this game on the blockchain while it's happening, it doesn't even matter because even if they saw all the pieces, they don't have any advantage that you and I are like, we don't have, right? So that's fine. That's a complete information game. But now what about an incomplete information game? What happens when you want to build poker on chain? Right. Because now all of a sudden, somehow you and I, we have to agree that the, the deck was shuffled correctly. The cards in your hand are supposed to be the cards in your hand. But I don't know what those cards are, but I have to agree that those are the right cards and vice versa. And you, so you can see where this imperfect information or this incomplete information game becomes kind of a headache when you kind of put it on chain. Right. Because now if someone were to go on the blockchain and look at the state of the game, they could see everyone's cards. And that's a big advantage. <laughs> so so how do you build an on-chain poker game? You have to use components like homomorphic encryption. You have to use components like zero-knowledge proofs. And so we actually have a universal circuit that allows you to build these types of poker games, these types of on-chain board games, on-chain card games, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I mean, those are kind of two use cases, one more on the enterprise side and one more on like the degen fun side. Uh, that, that's great. Great to get both of them out there. That, that really helps a lot of people kind of abstracting a bit of the technicality of what's going on related to ZK Tech to understanding what the real life use cases and benefits of that are. So th th thank you for sharing both of those. Now, I want to zoom out a little bit from the more specifics here to talk about the high level decision behind you deciding to go modular instead of monolithic. And context to that is because even on this pod, I've spoke to a lot of like both L1 and L2 scaling solution founders where it feels like on every other episode, it's a modular approach. Every other one, it is monolithic approach. And both have very strong arguments as to why. And personally, I'm very objective. I believe that both solutions can work. And how you've kind of spoke over the past 15 minutes about why you decided to go modular is because you want to be able to choose the best tech out there and combine that and, and build on top of that. And I feel like the argument for monolithic design has often been that you lose a certain level of customizability by picking so-called off-the-shelf solutions and trying to integrate those and it easily becomes complicated. So I wanted to hear your thinking about the general modular versus monolithic type of debate and maybe hear a bit about the strategic thinking behind why you wanted to bet on modular design instead of building everything as a monolith yourself. Yes, I'll take a very aggressive stance. Please do. I think if people say that building monolithically is better because you have that level of customizability, I think that what they're really trying to do is just delay the inevitable. And the inevitable is the commoditization of infrastructure, which honestly needs to happen. Like, I don't want to live in a world where five years later, we're still debating which L2 is the best because of these incremental changes, improvements, or differences in their technology stack and their deployment, right? I see developers already complaining about this, right? Like, they don't know what the difference is between all these L2s. They don't want to know what the difference is between all these L2s. Why do they have to choose? Just build and deploy an app and get users. Don't make me 
build an app, deploy it on this, then deploy it on that, then deploy it on that and get 10 users here and 30 users there and 500 users there and worry about maintaining all the code on all these different chains, right? It's just, it's not the way things should be done. Infrastructure needs to be commoditized. And in order to commoditize, you have to be able to work together in a way that everyone essentially develops what would become the best version of that technology and then scale that version of the technology out a thousand X, right? So like, you know, the argument for building monolithically so you can have your own individual components that are like slightly better than someone else's, but no one else really cares. Um, I think that doesn't really make sense. And then if you even look out into other spaces, right? If you look out into Web 2, right? Like what's the infrastructure dominance in Web 2 like and how do they approach it? In Web 2, it's all about cloud computing, right? Like I was in the cloud computing space for a while and, but, you know, let's not get personal. The point is <laughs> cloud computing is a commodity. Like as a developer, I don't care if I deploy on Amazon AWS or Microsoft Azure or DigitalOcean or Google Cloud or whatever it may be, because at the end of the day, the only thing I care about is making sure my application gets to my users in the most user-friendly, seamless experience possible. And so cloud computing is a commodity. And that doesn't mean that there is no room to play or there is no value. I mean, these are each billion dollar companies that make billions of dollars in revenue from their commodities. But at the same time, right, like even if AWS were to tell me like, oh, yeah, we have these special servers that do this or that. I'm just like, who cares? Like, I'm just going to deploy a thousand of them in order to scale anyway. I'm not going to just choose one server and like beef it up. So I do think like, well, I guess the other point is that when you build these cloud servers, those cloud servers are modular. Like no one, I, I, and I would challenge these people who say they want to build things monolithically to look at their cloud servers. Like, did they build their operating systems from scratch? No, they picked up a Linux distribution, right? Did they, did they build their CPUs from scratch, their hardware from scratch? No, they're either using Intel or AMD. Right. But like at the end of the day, they're still able to deliver the value they're trying to deliver. And so, you know, I, I don't think that modularity necessarily means that you can't have that fine tuned granularity you want, but rather modularity allows you to stop worrying about all that stuff and do what really matters. Yeah. Well said. You make it sound like modularity is a no brainer. So very well argued. <laughs> and now, now, in terms of, the performance of the stack that you have put together off the top of your head, are you able to share any data points on how your performance currently stacks up against, say, the current other leading blockchains in the space? Yeah. So I think especially with Celestia in place, right? And, you know, testnet environments and, you know, just like completely sandbox environments, those numbers, they're interesting and all, but I don't think they really reflect real world performance. And I think that our Mainnet is really yet to have seen the the full throttle real world performance just because, you know, we've been in a market where the user activity isn't exactly insane right now. But I hope we do soon, right? Like, and I think one sort of proxy to seeing that is inscriptions. And so because a lot of our throughput is also offset by Celestia, right? Celestia recently had inscriptions on, you know, their network. And then we've seen inscriptions essentially take down other L2s halt them from producing blocks and everything, but Celestia handle it just fine. We're using Celestia. So shall I, I'm excited, right? Like this kind of goes back to the whole point of like, why build monolithically when you can 
build modularly and take advantage of that high throughput. And so I think that, you know, if, if history repeats itself in that case, then I do think that like our throughput, our TPS is, is fairly competitive, if not, you know, one of the most competitive, right? It's already taking advantage of the OP stack, right? And so it's really just what they've got and probably a little better because of Celestia. <laughs> got it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Now, a topic that has gotten quite a bit of attention over the past few weeks has been yield-bearing L2s, the want of last while ago and you recently launched new paradigm so your own yield bearing l2 could you give us a primer into what the new paradigm is yeah so new paradigm right i guess for just the kind of primer of the primer for people that aren't familiar with like the yield bearing l2s and stuff right essentially there are ways that people are already taking advantage of less risky and even risk-free rates to obtain yield on their crypto. And so one of those ways is to simply stake ETH. You're essentially assuming your trust assumption here is that Ethereum doesn't go down. And so you're going to continue to reap the benefits of Ethereum now that it's a proof of stake network. And so that's around like 4%, right? So that's native yield that you can obtain on Ethereum. Assuming Ethereum doesn't go down, then it's fairly risk-free. And then on the other hand, right, you've got stable coins. And stable coins, especially now, like in this era of innovation, you see this combination of like stable coins with real world assets. And with that in mind, right, like uh, Mountain Protocol, for example, right, the partner that we're working with, they are a fully regulated stable coin that allows for yield on their stables through U.S. Treasury bills. And U.S. Treasury bills are, you know, the Ethereum's of currency, which, you know, hopefully the U.S. doesn't topple down anytime soon because, you know, we got a lot of money in there. And so... The U.S. Treasury bills can provide native yield to the stable coins. And so that's kind of just the yield bearing aspect of it. The, the yield bearing aspect of it on the L2 becomes interesting because people essentially have to, if I want to interact on an L2 and I want to move my ETH to the L2, essentially what I'm doing is I'm depositing my ETH into a smart contract and the ETH just sits there. And then the L2 creates that version of ETH corresponding into that world. But the real ETH is still on the L1 and it's just sitting there doing nothing. And so the thought process here is like, why does it have to sit there and do nothing? Why not just take that gigantic pool of ETH and stake it and earn interest on it and then give that interest back to everyone? So when you move your ETH to the L2 now, you get interest. Same with stable coins, because we have access to real world assets, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's kind of the, the concept behind all this. And so that's really the first part. But I think what's really, really interesting here is that, you know, we are a live L2. We have 150 different ecosystem projects, and many of those are DeFi products, right? So when you think about like swaps, when you build a liquidity pool, you get money from transaction fees when people make swaps. When you do lending, right, you get money from people borrowing your assets, right? And so like there's there's more sort of yields that you can take advantage of after you move that ETH onto the L2, even when the ETH is already earning yield. And so now you can you can put more yield on that economically, right? And depending on your level of risk tolerance, right? Like maybe you don't want to do swaps. I don't know, maybe you don't want to do lending, you're worried about bad debt or something, right? But, you know, like definitely those are not risk-free sort of assets or risk-free yield. But at the same time, right, like there are, there is that flexibility to earn additional yield on top of what you're already earning in the L1. So it's almost like getting liquid staked assets 
but those liquid staked assets become accessible for the entire ecosystem for you to take advantage of. Got it. That was a really great primer and overview of how that works. Now, I want to ask, because the marketing around the launch of New Paradigm was maybe somewhat aggressive, and even some have deemed it to be confrontational towards other L2s, with part of the columns being like time to ditch other L2s. And in one way, I'm assuming that was probably intentional by design to kind of stir the pot a little bit. But I wanted to ask whether it was, and was it like some strategic thinking behind that? Or did something in the market response surprise you? No, there wasn't any strategic thinking behind it. In fact, a lot of the wordplay that we used were just copy and paste in, in irony of what Blast said. So actually, Blast is the one that said it's time to ditch other L2s. And so we said it's time to ditch other L2s. And then also, if you notice our tweet, right? Like they, I think Glass said something about like the only yield bearing L2 something, something, something at the first tweet in their thread. And we said the only live L yield bearing L2 something, 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 right? So like it's, it's just poking fun at the, the marketing side that Blast had kind of initiated. Nothing more than that. Got it. Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah. So I, I kind of wanted to give you the chance to clarify that because easily, you know, when the things are so narrative driven and on Twitter, many people kind of maybe miss the connection to Blast's previous columns because when you build on it, people will easily call call you out on being unnecessarily confrontational. But I did notice a lot of wordplay and number play as well in, in the blog posts. It's the announcement of New Paradigm. I think phase three was 69 days after you can unstake 69 days afterwards. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I definitely saw the humor there. Mathematically proven. <laughs> For sure. Now, moving on from New Paradigm, that was a great overview. I'd maybe, one more like high-level question before we move on to more specifics again, would be when we take the current state of the blockchain landscape, I would love to get some peek into your mind on how you think of crypto-native economy kind of playing out and what Manta's role would be in that. So take a decade from now, how do you see the blockchain landscape evolving? I saw a really funny tweet first, just just want to say it like I, I forgot who it was, so I can't attribute it. But they were like, you know, it's a, it's 10 years from now, everyone's using blockchain, Solana's at like XYZ, and then, you know, mass adoption, on all sort of like mobile devices, and Ethereum is at 2200. Because right now, the, right now, the, the flavor of the week in terms of narrative is that Ethereum's dead, but that's the meme. But that, this is what it reminded me of when you asked me 10 years from now. It just reminded me of that tweet. That was kind of funny. I'm not saying Ethereum's dead. I just thought it was hilarious. But um, anyway, so 10 years from now, right? So this go goes back to more of like a philosophical thinking, right? Like there are many things broken about Web2. But one of the things that is really broken about Web2 in my mind is fragmentation in terms of geography. And I'll explain that, right? But like, I think in 20, even in 2023, we live in such a globalized world. We have friends from all over the world. We talk to people from all over the world on a daily basis, right? But why are there so many geographical limitations on, you know, the way that we can interact, the way that we can exchange money, the way that we can, you know, do things which ultimately really just belong to us. And so I do feel like this idea of borders and states is a little bit outdated. It's probably not going to come in 10 years, but I think that going back to the geographical fragmentation of Web 2, right? Like, you know, in, in the Web 2 space, you, you, in, in the U.S., you use PayPal. 
in the in Europe use PayPal. In China, no one uses PayPal. In India, no one uses PayPal, right? In Southeast Asia, people rarely use PayPal. In South America, some people use PayPal, depending on where you are, right? But everyone's got their own sort of version of these things that lead to a lot of inconveniences in being able to interact with one another or even interact with internet-based applications. You know, you got Facebook in the US and Europe. No one uses Facebook in China. No one uses Facebook in Russia. No one uses Facebook, you know, in, in well, I guess actually a lot of people use Facebook in India, but, you know, like they, they have their own versions. I think Web3 has this opportunity to really create this globalized economy whereby people can seamlessly interact with one another without having to worry about necessarily the underlying sort of products and the limitations of those products and which banks those products serve and if those banks are in your local area or not, but rather just purely electronic verifiable money that you can transact in a global basis wherever you are. Right. I think that's extremely powerful. Right. Like I, I remember my wife was trying to buy something, a dress that she really loved from from this Instagram store. And turns out like the people that were selling this dress were Russian and they can't use PayPal. They can't really use Apple Pay. And like, you know, we had to do some sort of Russian thing. And at the end of the day, they're just like, just send us USDT. And we're like, OK, sure. Yeah, I'll just send you USDT. Like, that's so easy. And so, like, I, I think like that, I think, is the next step of the global economy. It needs to be borderless, especially on the peer to peer level. Right. Maybe there will be two economies, one more so on like the the B2B level, the governmental level. And, and that may be still fiat. Right. But I think like on the crypto side, what we're really trying to achieve is this globalization of money rather than, you know, you use yen, I use USD, someone else uses rupees, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Very well said. And I think that is slowly starting to play out in some places. And I feel in practice, you see it in countries where the original thesis of crypto has been to kind of bank the unbanked, where the borderless transfer of money has become more of a day-to-day -day operation paying commerce. I think especially in the Middle East days, I've seen Tron has been used a lot, USDT, and it's really gained its use case in the stablecoin front. So it's happening slowly but surely, but things are easy for us in the Western countries. So we haven't had to think about the grassroots levels in a lot of ways. But I want to move on to speak a bit about Manta Pacific's economic model and financials around that now, because there are also so many different approaches in the blockchain space to building like economically sound protocols. So could you describe what economic model you have in place for Manta Pacific? So how funds flow through the system? Yeah. So when you say economic model, are you specifically referring to how does Manta Pacific make revenue? That's yes. One part of it. So who pays fees for what, how the fees are distributed to different stakeholders within the system and how Manta Pacific captures portion of that. So the revenue as well. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, it's typical of any sort of L2, right? I don't think we're reinventing the game there. We're just modularly taking that same economic approach <laughs> uh, rather than building it from the ground up. So our uh, components are split into two parts, right? One is the settlement fees, which you have to pay to Ethereum in order to write a transaction. And then one is the, the fees that the L2 collects. So the fees that the L2 collects, right, they go toward the sequencers for sequencer profit. They go towards also our own ecosystem growth. Now, I, I think like one of the huge advantages here is that with Celestia, right, because the, the ability to lower gas fees is so freaking high that we're able to actually maintain the same, if not better, profit margins at a fraction of the cost to the user, 
And so that really, really scales with volume, right? So those profit margins, right, essentially go back into the ecosystem, which we then use to help fund with marketing for ecosystem projects, for ecosystem growth funds, right? So like, I think once Manta Network really hits scale and volume of usage, not only are we able to capture more throughput, but that also means capturing more of that value and being able to bring it back into the ecosystem and push it to really grow. And all of that can be done at a fraction of the cost of what people experience on other networks. Got it. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point you raised. And I think a lot of folks probably haven't even realized Celestia's effect on the potential effect on like the profit margins as well from an L2's perspective. So that's really cool. How about, are there costs associated from MetaPacific's perspective with uh, utilizing the OP stack or then the Polygon's EKEVM? Not at the moment, no. But I think that, you know, in the future, as these, as these ecosystems, and when I say ecosystem, I mean like the, the super, I think they're called super chains or super nets or something like that in the OP side. Uh, and then, then Polygon CDK has its own sort of ecosystem. Uh, I think that there probably is going to be some type of fee structure to it. I know that uh, OP, OP Stack already kind of proposed some type of fee structure there, uh, assuming that you want to be connected into that ecosystem, or you can just be like a standup. But as of right now, they're not really there's there's not really any economic split. Got it. Uh, and now, if we think about value accrual in general from a blockchain's perspective, yes, you have your profit margin, you're capturing revenue. Well, what other or are there other aspects that you focus on when you think of value accrual, or is it? Uh purely optimizing revenue? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of value accrual, right, it's also about eventually, right, portfolio management of your treasury. I think that's also an aspect of the value accrual that, you know, it could be taken into account. That being said, I think we've learned from the past about, you know, collapses in other markets or collapses in previous markets that, you know, treasury management uh, should not be, can, should not take any risky uh, assessments, uh, despite how seemingly, you know, risk-free they may seem. So like, I'd say that that's definitely up for consideration, but not one of our priorities, right? Like at the end of the day, the sustainability, the longevity of the treasury, as well as the ecosystem is way more important than, you know, um, experimenting with, uh, risky assets. Got it. How do you define the sustainability uh, of the ecosystem? Is that like economic sustainability? Economic sustainability, as well as scalability. So the two components, right? Like one, got to cover operating costs of the network. <laughs> so that's, that's basic, keep the lights on. And then two is kind of going back to that whole modular conversation that we were having, right? Like if, if we build monolithically, my concern is we would no longer be relevant in five years when people are now talking about L3s, right? Which people already are talking about L3s. And so it's, I, I think like being able to have that longevity through the modular approach is also one of the ways that we define it. Yep, 100%. Now, what is the Manta token's purpose within your network? Yeah, so Manta token has several different purposes. And this kind of gets into also the L1 as well as the L2. And so the L1, which is Manta Atlantic, right? This is specifically a chain built with our ZK circuits directly integrated into the runtime. And essentially what that means is that you don't have to worry about any of the ZK stuff and you can use it for private on-chain identity. And so with that network, right, it's the gas fee token of the L1. 
it's also the governance token for the entire sort of Manta ecosystem. And on top of that, right, like we also use that for the ecosystem incentives, liquidity deployment and provisioning, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so gas fees, governance and ecosystem benefits, ecosystem growth. Okay. Does the token have any share in the value accrual of the revenue captured by Manta at the moment? At the moment, we are definitely thinking about it, but it's not launched yet. So there's still time. Yeah, we'll leave it at that then. <laughs> it's, er I mean, it is early. Yeah. And of course, these are startups <laughs> that we're talking about. So I mean, yeah. But and speaking about being a startup, congrats on the funding round you raised and announced a while back. You onboarded some great investors. Could you speak a bit about that funding round, the composition and what you raised it for? Yeah, it's really great that we were able to complete that round, not just for money's sake or, you know, strategic investors sake, but the fact that you know, Polychain was one of our seed investors. And so they were with us in the beginning. And so for them to reinvest and lead this next round, right, I think was a really strong signal for us and showcases like not just their belief in what we do, but also just us as a team, right? I, I think like, you know, in the space, I, I think like having that sort of recognition of that loyalty, recognition of that consistency is very important. And so you know, more than just the fundraise itself, I think the symbol of Polychain continuing to lead, even, you know, when they're looking at around much larger than when they first invested in seed, it I think is a testament about like who we are and what we're doing. In terms of, you know, the funds that we're raising for, right, this is really to position us strategically for this next chapter of our growth. And, you know, I can't get into too much detail about that right now, but at the same time, right, like you, you've seen New Paradigm. Right. Like that was kind of a smash. And so we're kind of gearing towards these types of initiatives to really attract users. And the reality here is, you know, Manta Pacific is right now, for lack of a better term, a sleeping giant. So it's not just some sort of shill. Let me tell you what this means. When we started New Paradigm, in a matter of five days, we collected a hundred and I think 20 million in TVL, just from New Paradigm, right? And that's apart from everything else uh, on the TVL on Manta L2 already. So this influx of liquidity is, is a huge opportunity for ecosystem applications to really just catalyze that growth, right? And so because, you know, when, when you have liquidity on other L2s, it's utilized in some way. It's being locked in liquidity pools is being locked in lending protocols and all this other stuff. And so like how much, how much free floating liquidity do you really have? Right. And that is the chunk of the remainder of the pie that other DeFi apps can take advantage of in order to make their mark and build their position in the space and build the reputation of their app and kind of grow. We have 120 million right now floating there, getting ready to get utilized. Right. Like, and I, so I, I won't name the name, because I'm not here to like endorse products and I'm not trying to endorse products, right? But like there's this protocol on us that, you know, they're also on other L2s. And in the other L2s, I'm looking at their data and their TVL there is around like, you know, anywhere between one to three million over the past two months. And then with New Paradigm and their adoption of the assets of New Paradigm, they were able to achieve a TVL of around 30 million in two days on us. So like, 
you know, there's so much opportunity here for the protocols, the developers, the applications to really take advantage of and make their mark. And then on top of that, the beauty of, you know, new paradigm. Yeah, sure. The TVL is great and everything. But at the same time, like we're just like blasting it out in terms of trying to get as many eyeballs and as many users knowing about Manta, interested in Manta as possible, and then funnel those users into the ecosystem where they can then explore these DeFi applications that now have all this TVL and all this growth, right? So like we're, we're trying to create essentially this flywheel and really push that growth from there. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the details I can get into with, you know, all this stuff when I talk about like, you know, positioning ourselves for growth because of this round. But I hope you can see where I'm coming from there. I can. And it definitely sounds like you're well positioned to get that flywheel moving and moving fast because it feels like the momentum within the market as well has started picking up pretty good timing from your perspective as well. So I'm excited to see how everything will play out there. And as you mentioned, with this round, it's a testament to like Polychain believing in your ability to execute on the plans that you have. Could you maybe speak a little bit about the team and the core contributors to the Manta network at the moment? Yeah, sure. So we are an extremely global team. We have 60 people all around the world. I don't think we have more than maybe two people in most countries, with the exception of Turkey, India, and China. I think those are our highest concentration of employees or core team contributors. And apart from that, everyone else is extremely distributed all over the place. Bulgaria, France, Canada. Yeah, uh, I, I can't list them all. Vietnam. Truly global. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, so let's go on and on. Yeah, yeah. so a uh, very distributed global team, and we've been hacking away at it for about three years now. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's how it should be. Truly global team. If you want to hire the best talent, you, you don't want to be restricted to a certain geographic area in any way. So for sure. How about if we think about like main KPIs and measuring success and performance internally, what are the metrics and KPIs that, that you use? Oh, boy. I mean, the answer is different depending on which team you ask, right? <laughs> I think, you know, more holistically as a network, I, I mentioned a couple that, you know, we are looking at very closely because it kind of aligns with our strategy based on, you know, the round that I just described. And that is basically TVL as well as TVL utilization, right? Like we want to make sure that people are active and these are real users. And I think that TVL utilization is kind of a proxy to determine who the real users are, because otherwise, you know, you've got all of these bots, every L2 has got tons of bots. And so like, how do you cut through that, cut through the fat and really get to the meat of it? And so, you know, while it's nice to see wallet addresses and, you know, all this other stuff, I think like more importantly is like the activities. What's the average daily active user, how many smart contracts do these users typically interact with on a monthly basis, right? And trying to kind of get those up as much as possible. I think those are kind of recipes or ingredients for a very successful, thriving ecosystem, right? Rather than just looking at, oh, here's our TVL, here's our users, and then no one's doing anything with the TVL. None of the user is actually doing anything. <laughs> Uh, I agree. The, those, that's a good list of metrics to be looking at. And definitely the utilization rate is so important instead of just blindly staring at TVL, which in itself doesn't tell too much. Now, you describe yourself as kind of a sleeping giant. You're well positioned within the market, lots of opportunities. How about on the challenges side of things? What, what do you see as maybe 
bottlenecks that you'll have to open in, in the near future? In terms of challenges, I mean, I think at the very end of the day, you know, regulatory compliance is always there, right? Especially because it's kind of still not entirely clear on exactly what can and cannot be done and things are still being resolved. And then on the technology side, I think one of the things that because of the approach that we have, which is, you know, modularity, which means that we take pre-built components and, you know, smash them into this awesome thing, our approach is a little bit different than other L2s, right? Other L2s, you know, they hire teams that can build extremely innovative products. And so on our side, right, like we have that for our universal circuits. But when it comes to the infrastructure level, we are very much focused on security and fallback and resiliency because we're using, you know, these other components and that introduces trust assumptions, right? Like you have to trust that this doesn't happen. You have to trust that that doesn't happen. But the question now is what if it does, right? What if Celestia goes down for some reason, right? What's the fallback plan there? What's the resiliency plan there so that our network can still maintain its uptime? And how do we build for that, right? And so that's kind of our approach to a lot of like how we approach modularity. And so, you know, we have to, I think, take into account all these different risk factors for downtime. Uh, and then how do you create plan B, plan C, plan X in order to resolve that? And I think we're doing a pretty decent job. And it's not just us, right? Like even Celestia right now for OP stack deployments, they have fallback to Ethereum. So if Celestia does, you know, somehow stop, you know, for whatever reason is inaccessible, the call data can still be thrown back into Ethereum, gas fees will just increase. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's still it's still usable. And so, you know, we have these types of fallback plans for other components as well. Super important. That's good to hear. Now, you've been live for around about three months. Would you be able to give like a brutally honest performance assessment of the first three months? Are you happy with how things have gone? Yeah, let's see. So because you're asking me to be brutally honest, I'm trying to really think. <laughs> Yeah. So what I'll say is that on the good side, we as a team, despite being geographically distributed, move very fast. I think our mentality is very unique in this space because despite being an infrastructure product or being an infrastructure play, we have a very product oriented mindset, right? So iterate, deploy, iterate, deploy. And so as a result, we're able to churn out new products, new services, new integrations very quickly, right? And I think that's a testament with Celestia as well, because we're the first general or we're the first Ethereum L2 that uses Celestia. I think what the trade-off there is, is that especially when it comes to, you know, like more so on the marketing campaign side, right? Like we are still improving on the operational sides to make sure that every single detail on the marketing side can be, you know, incrementally better than before. And I think we're getting to that, right, in order to kind of get the, the communications and the partnerships and everything buttoned up to a pace that we're actually, you know, operating at. And so I think that, you know, as an L2 that's just come out three months ago, we're still trying to figure out exactly what the rhythm is and how we can match each beat. But I think we're getting there and we're definitely improving. That's good to hear. And three months is a short time. Now, 
to start wrapping this session up on anything that we discussed here or something that we haven't yet touched on, do you feel that there are any topics or achievements that have kind of gone under the radar that you feel could have deserved some more attention from the crypto community? I mean, if that's the case, then it's really a testament to, you know, where we can improve as a team on our communication. And when I say that, you know, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not pointing fingers at the team or anything. I run the marketing team. So, you know, it's really self-reflection. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I mean, like, you know, we have, we have gotten the appropriate amount of attention at every stage of the project, depending on how large of a scale our project was at the time. Right. I mean, the amount of attention we've gotten on New Paradigm obviously blows everything else out of the water in terms of attention we've gotten in the past. But that's also because we're at this stage where we can capture that attention now. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. And then then just a final question. What upcoming features or milestones are you particularly excited about, Romanto? Yeah. So New Paradigm being live right now, assets are already tradable and transferable on the L2. We are also going to be enabling withdrawals for those assets in the next couple of months. So that means that, you know, it's a purely free flow. On top of that, right, we are transitioning over to ZK EVM using Polygon CDK. And so we're working closely with that team as well. I think there's a lot of innovation on their side as well. And, you know, I, I said we are sleeping giants. I mean, Polygon is a sleeping giant in the ZK space. Like, honestly, out of all of the projects in this space right now building uh, on the ZK side, like, I think. Polygon is the most underestimated one out there because they make most of the innovation and projects copy Polygon's code all the time. But for some reason, other projects are getting way more you know, noticeability than, than Polygon, which to their you know credit, like they do a really good job, right? And so really excited to be working with them to get our network transitioned over to ZK EVM. Sounds like a, a nice nugget of alpha there <laughs> people to look more into into what polygon's doing on the zk side but that's great and yeah thank you so much kenny uh, i feel we covered a lot of topics here within a pretty efficient hour this is an incredibly insightful overview of everything going on at mansa i do really appreciate your output and your opinions on the things and the reasoning behind why you've decided on certain approaches i'm sure listeners will get a lot of value and better understanding of everything going on at Manta. So I really appreciate this. Hope we can do this again in, say, you know, a few months time and, and look back on how things have progressed. Yeah, hopefully in a good way. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This has been really great. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a nice breath of fresh air from the grind. 